Where does yesterday's future, which is already here, ready here, ready here, ready here, meet today's future, which is about to happen, and tomorrow's future, which could be just minutes away? Welcome to Technology Revolution, the future of now, where host Bonnie D. Graham asks savvy futurists for their predictions about the tech-driven trends that are shaping our future right now. Here's your host, who will take us into the future of now, Bonnie D. Graham. Ooh, Bonnie in the house. I always get goosebumps hearing my co-producer, Ryan Treasure, VP of Operations at World Talk Radio Voice America, do that opening. I love it. It is the future of now. And as we like to say here on Tech Revolution, we call it Tech Rev. The future of now hasn't happened yet. So anybody who tells you the future is already here, that was somebody else's future. It's not ours, so get used to it. We have a really, really great show today, so let me get started. I have a quote from a man named Thomas Frey, or Fry, depending on how you pronounce it, F-R-E-Y. Back from 2013, he was blogging at a website called futuristicspeaker.com. Let me read a couple of highlights, and then I'll tell you what we're really going to be talking about. Here's what Thomas Fry said. By 2030... The average person in the U.S. will have 4.5 packages a week delivered with flying drones. The same average person will travel 40% of the time in a driverless car. They will use a 3D printer to print hyper-individualized meals. They'll spend most of their leisure time on an activity that has not even been invented yet. Here's more. Most people will have stopped taking pills Ooh, in favor of a new device that causes the body to manufacture its own cures. But, 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 space colonies, personal privacy, and flying cars will all be, still be hot topics of discussion, but not a reality yet. That's from Thomas Fry, or Frey, 2013. And here we are in the beginning of 2020, and let's see what we're going to do about this. So in 2030, that's what we're focusing on today, will you be that average person? he described, or will you be what I call a different statistical notation in someone's rear view mirror blog? That's a tongue twister. We're going to ask three experts today. We have Frank Diana, we have Kevin Benedict and Gray Scott for their take on life in 2030. How will you eat, play, work, drive, and do everything else? So welcome, welcome, welcome. I am Bonnie D. Graham, aka Radio Red. Very happy to have you here. We're going to go around the table and have my esteemed panelists introduce themselves briefly. We can catch up with two of them. Frank and Gray have been many, many times on radio with me, and Kevin Benedict is new. So, Frank, Diana, you're up first, please. How are you? Have you been? What are you up to as a recognized futurist, Frank? Uh, well, thanks for having me again, Bonnie. I'm fine these days, traveling a lot, um, and up to oh, just keeping track of all the things you just talked about, um, which is a full-time job, as you might imagine. And what do you think about 2030? Is it something you're looking forward to, you're afraid of, Frank? And, and when you say you're a recognized futurist, what does that mean? How do Could I be a futurist? I know Gray's a futurist. I don't know Kevin yet. How do you get to be a futurist, Frank? I get, I get that question all the time. <laughs> I mean, some people, some people like, like Gray, you know, through their, their education and training, I, I would imagine, you know, prepared himself for this. Some people like myself have just, you know, had a career where, you know, foresight or seeing into the future is something that just came natural to them and, you know, end up doing, making a career out of it, which is really how I, I stumbled on it, if you will. Uh, and in terms of your question around 2030, I, I am mostly excited about 2030, and I do view it as, uh, I think this decade is a very, very transformative decade, positioned by the last two. Very interesting. Thank you very much. So if I just go around saying I think the future will be, I think the future will be 20 times a day and people listen to me, I could be a futurist too, do you think, Frank? Well, that could last a couple of weeks, but if you're really, really bad <laughs> at it. <laughs> well, after I talk to you and Kevin and Gray, I'm going to be really good at it. I might even have my own opinions. Thank you very much, Frank. Pleasure to have you on. Always an honor, actually. I know how busy you are. Let's go to Kevin Benedict. Kevin is an analyst futurist. Futurist, there we go. And managing partner of digital transformation at Regalix or Regalix. Kevin, welcome. We don't know anything about you, so please share who you are. Thank you, Bonnie, and I love this format that you have here. Um, Thank you. Yeah, just going back and addressing the original question about how do you become a futurist is just where you focus your writing and your speaking over time. I think as you get more and more gray hairs uh, and you specialize kind of in, in different focus areas, 
uh, then others as well start calling you that. And you can order that certificate for $19.95 online. <laughs> I'm in trouble about the gray hairs because mine keep getting touched up as red, multi-shades of red every four weeks, Kevin. So I don't know if I would deserve, by, by, my, by my hair color, I don't know if I would deserve that. You, you should see what gray's hair color is. Kevin, what, what do you do with this company? What is this company all about? Yeah, I, I do a lot of um, work primarily on where is the direction of sales and marketing and customer success. That's where I've spent the last two years focused on that. What are the trends that are happening in that particular area, as well as supply chain? So, you know, you, have, you can't do everything. So those are the two areas I've been going very deep in, looking at um, what, both, what technology is doing, how society and individual consumers, how are their behaviors changing, and what does that mean for the future of business? Interesting. Very, very interesting. I have to tell you, Kevin, speaking of what people are doing, and to all of you, Gray, I'll I'll get to you in a second. There is a hashtag that I think may be fairly new on Twitter. As you all know, that's where I do most of my social media for these shows. The hashtag is say no to people who... And then you fill in the blank. And I went there just before the show, Kevin, and people are writing, say no to people who don't like Harry Potter, people who don't like dogs, people who don't say thank you when you hold the door open for them. And to me, it's almost a way of a personal bad Yelp review in a way. It's saying, I'm not going to name who you are, but you know who you are. And I know what you did or didn't do. And I don't like you because any comments on that, Kevin? Is this the way the world is going? Oh, I think so. I that is kind of fun, actually, because um, I mean, technology is to a lot of us. Technology has been happening to us, and it's not always positive. The results, and so the ability to give feedback and say, you know, what, just because it's possible doesn't mean it's preferable, and doesn't mean it's positive. And so to be able to give that kind of feedback and say, you know, I really want to control the direction of my life. I don't want something else controlling that or, uh, you know, just going against my values. Thank you very much. Gray Scott, you've been so patient with me. How are you, Gray? Happy New Year. Welcome back. And for people who, by some strange turn of fate, don't know who you are, Gray Scott, which is impossible to me, tell everybody who you are and what you do. And then you can comment on this trending hashtag, say no to people who. Welcome, Gray Scott. Hey, Bonnie. Thanks for having me back. Pleasure. Uh, My name is Gray Scott. I'm a futurist and a techno philosopher, and I have a show on YouTube called Futuristic Now, where we focus on emerging trends, emerging technologies, and digital philosophy. And how did you get to be a futurist, Gray? That's a long story. Uh, I started working... We we have a little bit of time. Go ahead. (laughs) I started working with the World Future Society. That's actually how I got involved in um, futurology. And uh, started writing for the uh, Futurist magazine, and from there started speaking and started doing television. And before you know it, uh, this is my full-time job now. Um, I always like to say that futurists gaze where everyone else merely glances. Um, and that's really the, the difference, is that when you, when you focus all of your attention on the subject of futurism then you are a futurist. And that's really, it's really as simple as that. Um, If you can turn that into a job and if you can make money off of it, then you're a professional futurist. So there, there are lots of futurists out there that don't do or don't work in futurology, but they are futurists. Um, They may be in other fields. I'm sure Kevin and um, uh, can speak to this as well. Um, I think a lot of what happens in the world is that people have the ability and the foresight of futurism, but they don't turn that into a full-time job. And that's, for all three of us on this panel, that's what we've done. Very interesting. How did you get involved with this World Futures Society? You said that's what started this whole career for you, Gray. What attracted you? Were you in college? Were you in high school? What, what was the draw that, that sparked something in your brain? Well, this is interesting because the the way I became a futurist was actually is actually a very futuristic story. So, um, I was working in New York City where I live now. I was working in New York City as a photographer for many years, mm-hmm. and uh, during the crash of two thousand eight, I lost my studio, and I decided 
that I needed to change careers completely. Uh, so I let that go. I was trying to figure out what it was that I was looking for for my life. You know, not a, not a job, but a, a, a full-time career. And so I got on Google, and I, I literally made a list of the things that I love to do and the, thing, and the subjects that I loved. And I started Googling all of those words or phrases, and an ad popped up for the World Future Society Conference. So Google actually led me to this career, as strange as that sounds. And I jumped on a plane. The conference was the next week. I jumped on a plane not knowing anything about this, um, mm-hmm. this group and found out that it's a 50-year-old organization that, you know, from uh, Buckmaster Fuller and Isaac Asimov and Arthur C. Clarke, all of the, the big futurists have been involved with this group in one way or another. And within 15 minutes, I knew I was going to do this for the rest of my life. Oh, my goodness gracious. Well, we're glad you did. Very appreciative of your being here. What do you think about 2030? Just a quick look ahead, Gray. That's our topic today. Is it going to be a good time for us? Are we evolving? Are we devolving? Are we evolving? Are we revolutionizing? What's the direction? Well, I've said before, maybe on this show, that um, there are a lot of great things that are going to happen, and there are a lot of negative things that are going to happen. I think what happens as we move towards the future is that Everything that we have, everything that we're experiencing, just expands into a, a broader spectrum. So the extreme on both sides. You're going to have much more abundance. You're going to have much more um, chaos. And that a lot of what we'll be talking about today, um, you know, these are positive technologies that we try to keep in mind. But you also have to, as a good futurist, you have to be sure to layer on top of that the things that could disrupt mm-hmm. our predictions. Um, you know, we can get into that later, but some of those things, of course, are climate crisis. Uh, you know, we're seeing this virus go around the world today. So that those are little things that can disrupt some of these predictions. So I, I, I definitely want to talk about that as well. Thank you very much. Good to have the three of you on with me. This is the part of the show where I have asked each of my panelists to send me a future-focused quote of their choosing from a book, a movie, a song, any place, anywhere, a famous person, a not-yet-famous person, a future-might-be-famous person. And I'm looking at the quotes. Let's go in order. Frank Diana sent me a quote from a song by John Legend. The song is If You're Out There. And let me just read the first stanza, and the last line is what Frank has selected. If you hear this message wherever you stand i'm calling every woman calling every man we're the generation we can't afford to wait here's the line the future started yesterday and we're already late frank beautiful song i don't remember the melody but i sure enjoy reading the lyrics so frank how did you pick this well first of all it is a really great song uh, melody wise and uh, just very catchy uh, but uh, the message is very strong and that is um, that, you know, change is happening, and as I think Kevin said, it could happen to us, or we can engage and, and drive the kinds of change that are productive for society. Uh, and, and at the core of the message, at least in my interpretation, is you know, the speed that we see the change occurring. Uh, you know, people are starting to say our acceleration is accelerating, and that's completely true. And mm-hmm. so that whole notion of it started yesterday and we're already late, I, I'm a firm believer of that. Uh, unless we start taking the future and thinking about that future more seriously, uh, it's likely to happen to us. Thank you very much. Beautiful song. I always enjoy seeing John Legend on many of the award shows. He pops up everywhere. And there's something so, I'm going to use an overused word, but there's something so authentically beautiful about when he sings and when he expresses himself. Thank you, Frank. I can't remember you ever bringing us a song lyric before on all the shows you've been on. Is this is this a first for you, Mr. Diana? Mr. Deanna, is this a first? No, that same uh, quote I've given to you before, one time before. Okay, one time before. Thank you very much. I said corrected. Kevin Benedict, I'm looking at your quote, and you sent us a quote from Dean Buonamano. Your brain is a time machine. Dean, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Dean V. Buonamano, B-U-O-N-O-M-A-N-O, born in 1965, I call him a young fellow, is an American neuroscientist, psychologist, and author, professor at UCLA, who focuses in his research on neurocomputation and how the brain tells time. He is one of the first first neuroscientist to begin to ask how the human brain encodes time. He's the author of two books, Brain Bugs, 
how the brain's flaws shape our lives. And your brain is a time machine. That's what the quote is from, the neuroscience and physics of time. Interesting. Here's the quote Kevin has selected. We are all futurists. Aha! Because to a large extent, the brain is a mechanism for collecting memories of the past in order to use them continually to predict the future. Love the quote. Kevin Benedict, good one. Talk to me. How'd you find this one? I happened to be reading that book when you asked the question. And so that was, and it, it was one that I had highlighted because, it, you know, that is a question, right? We're all, and we are all futurists. So it's not just those that specialize because that's how the brain is working. And I just think it's a fascinating concept that of all um, animals out there, humans are particularly known for being able to project not, uh, I mean, past, they can project past mating season. Um, past the changing of a season to actually where do I want to be when I'm 50, when I'm 55, when I'm 65, how much money do I need for retirement? Those things are unique to humans. And so what Dean is doing is he's really studying that and saying, how does the brain collect all its past experiences and all the knowledge that's around it and that it gains from reading and watching and learning and then projects that into the distant future and then reverse engineers that to a plan that you can implement today. And I just thought it was a fascinating topic. So that's why I highlighted that one. It's so perfect for our discussion today. And here I was asking, I, I hadn't really, I put it in my notes, Kevin, but I wasn't looking at it when I opened the show and I started asking you and Frank and Gray, how do you know you're a futurist or how do you become a futurist? And here it is. So I guess when any of us say in, in casual or serious conversation, I'm hoping for, I'm wishing for, I think by next year I will be, we're, we're projecting the future. We're using past experiences, memories, as Buenomano says. So we're in a way, I guess we all, that's really the point of this show, Kevin, technology revolution, the future mm -hmm. of now. What do we think it's going to be? Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Thank you. Wonderful, wonderful choice. And you're a newcomer to the show and you get it. Gray Scott has sent us a quote from FM 2030. It's FM hyphen 2030. Uh, Gray, this completely stumped me. So, of course, I looked it up. He's born as Feridun M. Esfandieri, Persian. October 1930 to July 2000 left us 20 years ago. A Belgian-born, Iranian-American author, teacher, transhumanist philosopher. you got to tell me what that is. Futurist, consultant. We're abounding in futurists today. Consultant and athlete, notable as a transhumanist with the book, Are You a Transhuman? Monitoring and Stimulating Your Personal Rate of Growth in a Rapidly Changing World back in 1989. He rep Interesting. I don't know if you know this, Gray, but I bet you do. He represented Iran as a basketball player at the 1948 Olympic Games in London, OMG, when he was 18 years old, and he was on the UN Concili Conciliation Commission for Palestine from 52 to 54. Very interesting man. Here is the quote. I am a 21st century person who was accidentally launched in the 20th. I have a deep nostalgia for the future. Wow, what a quote. Oh, my. Gray, how in the world did you find FM 2030? Well, I've been a fan of his work for a long time, and I actually own his book, Are You Transhuman?, um, which I, I suggest everyone read because he was asking questions um, in the late 80s and early 90s that uh, really no one was asking. Um, and he was quite famous in his time. I mean, there are videos of him, I think, on CNN did something or CBS did something on him, a video interview with him. Um, and he was talking about telepresence, and telecommuting and all these things and wor using words that the general public had never, ever heard before. So he really broke new uh, ground in the futurology field. And so I've been a fan of his for years, um, and I love that he describes his, his feeling for the future as nostalgia for the future, you know, using a word that we usually reserve for historical reference. And he's using it and flipping it towards the future, and I love that. Thank you very much. Anybody want to respond to anybody else's quote selection? I don't usually do this, but everything was so interesting. Frank, you want to say anything to Gray or Kevin? Kevin to, to Frank or Gray? Gray to Frank or Kevin? I'm trying to keep all my, all my panelists straight here. Anybody have any comments? The quotes were wonderful, by the way. Everybody good? Everybody I, yeah, I, really, I really like that, Kevin. Yeah. Flipping of the, uh, of the nostalgia uh, equation. That was, that was very provocative. 
That was. I heard somebody else. Who have we got? Yeah, I, um, this is Kevin. I, I was just looking at this thinking, you know, is the future, am I really nostalgic for the future? And to me, I'm thinking, um, if it goes my way, I am. But if it goes the wrong way, then, you know, that's not necessarily something I'm looking forward to. But what, but what I think it does is it really um, makes me passionate about trying to shape the direction of technology so that I can be nostalgic for the future. Oh, I like that. Any other comments? Everybody good? I'm ready to move on. I was going to cover some everyday types of topics, which I mentioned when I opened the show with the title, Life in 2030, How Will You Eat, Play, Work, Drive, and Do Everything Else? I'm just going to hit on a couple topics and get a quick around the table of what you all think of these. I have some provocative statements here from a gentleman named Michael Gale who, who uh, has a podcast and blog on Forbes, and he sent me a couple of notes here. So I'm just going to read them and see what, what you all think. So we'll just go quickly around the table like a lightning round, and then I'll get to all of your predictions. But some of these are fascinating. His prediction number one was fine dining as we know it might be on its last legs. And this was a quote he got from the owner of one of the 150 global three-star Michelin restaurants. What do you think? Frank, Diana, is fine dining on its way out? I think any experience um, that we enjoy today, like fine dining, is likely to change, not just in terms of its foundation, but also how we experience these things. So anything like that, I'm a big believer that the experience itself is fundamentally going to change. And, you know, we might create a new elite with 3D custom food printing, which I mentioned in the quote from Thomas Fry from 2013. Kevin Benedict, what do you think? Fine dining on its way out because of whatever? Tell me, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's on its way out as it is today. Let me give you an example. I spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley, and I go to a restaurant, many of these restaurants around the apartment that I have down there, and in the evening at 6 o'clock, the restaurant's empty. Mm. And maybe just because I'm eating early, but I see a whole counter just covered with deliveries where people are rushing in, grabbing the bag, and leaving because it's, in that particular instance, the experience was not sufficient to have people come and sit in the restaurant. They would rather have their experience in their own living room and have the food delivered. So I can see experiences changing. Fine dining, it depends on what goes in that definition, right? Because mm-hmm. as Frank talked about, experience is always desired. A good experience is always desired. Will it be the same? Probably not. But the whole restaurant experience is changing and just last night, so my wife is vegan, so we go to this Thai restaurant um, at a mountain resort area here, and in some cases, they've just never heard of vegan or gluten-free or things like that, but I could see in the future where it will be easier and easier for people with specific dietary wants and preferences mm-hmm. to be able to, uh, I mean, people will be prepared for it. It won't be something that's new and unusual people will just have versions of anything on the menu that they can provide. Interesting. Thank you very much. Good perspective there. Gray Scott, what do you think? Fine dining? Future future dead? Future alive? Future what, something called elegant snobbery? Will it still exist? 2030? <laughs> well, I'm going to paint a little bit of a different picture here. So mm-hmm. my forecast for this is that fine dining becomes a digital service. What's happening right now is that uh, there are several companies that are developing what what we are calling chef bots, and these are robots Ooh. that you they're systems that you attach into your kitchen, and they are robotic arms, and they hang above your lower counter above the stove, and they cook. They can they can chop, they can cook entire meals, and these meals are can be downloaded as a digital service. The reason that I think we're moving in that direction first because we've developed the robots, so they're already here. The second, and the price will fall eventually so that it can be, maybe it's still a luxury service, um, but you have to think about this. Imagine a really exclusive, famous chef who can um, download his recipe, and instead of serving 80 people a night, he's able to serve 80,000 people a night. So, you know, the fine dining experience is robotic in the future, and it's a digital service in the future. 
Thank you. Interesting. Frank or Kevin, you want to respond to Chef Bots? That's a new one for me. Will they have a French accent? Great. Will they have a French accent? I am your Chef Bot. I am here to make you Coco Vin. <laughs> you know what? Probably, maybe if, if, that's, uh, if that's something you want to program into the system. Yeah. I think so. Or, or some of you could have yours programmed uh, to be like a Julia Child or or, or, or a different, different looking, different sounding female chef. Frank, would you have a chef bot? <laughs> so what Greg just described is what I was trying to say in terms of the experience just changing, right? Um, and it's not just about fine dining, using a great chef uh, to, to provide the food, but, you know, how many people hate to cook uh, and would love that chef bot just to, you know, eliminate that, that tedious chore of cooking. So you can see a number of, and, and the price points will come down. We're seeing this across the board, right? So these things might start as a luxury experience, but then very quickly move to something that everybody can experience. I think so. Thank you very much. That's great. I can always count on you for something very interesting. <laughs> Let's go. Uh, Kevin, did you want to say anything about ChefBots? You good? Yeah. I mean, I'm looking at, I'm just my sitting here pondering the economics <laughs> of that and just thinking this, you know, if you can get a, a chef bot that is suddenly it goes viral with everything it does, it can like vacate all the other restaurants in the neighborhood, everybody rushes to that one chef bot and there's not the capacity with one chef bot to be able to deliver it at that location. So then you can see this aggregation of interest and viral attention. Everybody else goes bankrupt, but then since they can't deliver to everybody, it shifts back and everybody gets business again. But that goes back to the it's just the social it's just interesting when something goes viral how the waves of impact economically can go through the region because of all of a sudden all the consumer interest changes leaving some high and dry and others swamped Thank you very much, all of you. That was quite an interesting around the table. I can't say that I'm hungry, but I'm going to have lunch after the show. Let's go to another prediction from Michael Gale. And he said, listen to this, the company that cloned Barbara Streisand's dogs thinks it will be common practice in 10 years' time. And the explanation is it currently costs 50000 U.S. dollars to clone a dog or a horse. The science and technology is there. The ob- idea is obvious, never lose a deeply beloved pet. It works for police forces and zoos with rare animals. If we saw demand grow a 1,000% over 10 years, the cost will drop by at least 80%. At that point, 10000 bucks sounds pretty small. So let's start with you around the table again. Frank, Diana, would you clone a dog? Do you think it's possible? Do you even care? 2030. <laughs> I would not clone a dog, but I, I more than think it's possible. I mean, we, we, we know these things are possible. And, and I go back to this, uh, this, the cost of just about anything technology or science-oriented is dropping. Uh, and, and the Genome Project was just a great example of how quickly that dropped. So I would envision that these kinds of capabilities will, will enter the realm of the possibility for anybody uh, in this decade because that's just the speed at which these things are happening. Um, so I would expect to see that. Uh, now, whether I do it or not is you know, a different conversation. Interesting. <laughs> Kevin, do you have a pet you want to clone, or would you spend between ten and fifty grand for that by 2030? Oh my, yes. So I have a pet. I would love to do that if, if, the, pet passed, uh, if the pet passed away. My wife said, no way. But then it brings up the question that the dog you have and love today, is it the result of nurture or nature, right? Mm-hmm. Are you the same person you were over the last 12 years that resulted in a pet that you have and love? If you had the same physical animal, would, would your ability to fill it with the same experiences and trainings and love result in the same dog or would you end up with a totally different dog and then you're wondering to yourself why did i spend the money ah interesting interesting okay gray what do you think cloning an animal a pet what do you think are you there yeah i think i would i think i I have a i have a dog that i would probably want maybe several copies of at the same time uh just just because it's um in a lot of ways, and Kevin sort of touched on this, in a lot of ways, this is part of the digital philosophy research that futurists are involved in. Is, is, you know, when you go and you experience these things directly, 
there is data there to be accessed. So, you know, what is what is the effect of having the same exact a physical copy of a dog, multiple copies of that even. We're not, you know, we're, I'm, I would say maybe two or three copies would be interesting. Um, and then seeing how that, how those dogs behave differently or the same, um, you know, based on how you behave, nature and nurture, I, I think that's an interesting idea. Very interesting. Would you pay 10000 for that, Gray? Or would 50000 be, I'm, I'm not asking for your bank account. I'm just wondering, what would it be, <laughs> no, what would it be worth? You said multiple. <laughs> well, you have to remember how quickly the price falls. I mean, yes. if you if you price out what the first cell phones cost, the, mm-hmm. the very first cell phones, if you if you use inflation and you you extrapolate that number forward, um, that's a massive amount of money in today's terms. But look how cheap the phones are now. I mean, for eighty nine dollars, you can get a cell phone now. So yes. and maybe even less. So you have to remember that. What we think of as ten thousand dollars today may be one hundred and fifty dollars in the future. I mean, it, it, that sounds incredible, but you know, things move pretty quickly, and technologies um, as they expand and as more people uh, get them, then the price falls. Very well put. I will recall fondly or not, back in nineteen eighty-eight. Nobody make any comment. I'm not telling you what, when I what I was doing then, but I wanted to be a graphic designer. I was in marketing. I was a former at that point former computer mainframe computer programmer. Frank has heard me say the Xerox Sigma six CP five keep punching. I was COBOL, then I was PL one on the IBM forty three forty one. Yes, I still remember those numbers. And I wanted to go into graphic design. So my parents said, "We'll loan you money to start your own graphics business." So I went out and bought a Mac, a desktop Macintosh, and a black and white printer. The price tag on those two items, I think you're all sitting down, was over $11,000. Wow. $11,000, 1988. So, Gray, your point is extremely well taken. Yes, a good Mac is still about two grand, but it's not 10 to, well, what would $11,000 be from 1988? I'll have to look that up after the show. Thank you for your comments around. One more comment around the table, and then I'm going to go to all of your predictions. We have a lot to cover. This is another one from Michael Gale. He says, we will most likely by 2030 have a real holodeck, H-O-L-O-D-E-C-K, in our houses in less than seven years. This is from the ex-head of innovation at HP. Let me read a little more. By 2030, we will have our own holo lens, H-O-L-O lens, like products for work and at home. It may not be full 3D, but we'll be able to immerse ourselves in games, meetings, and complex technical tasks. It will make 5G a reality. Any comments on that? Frank, let's go with you first, Frank Diana. Yeah, that, that whole space, uh, and let's consider virtual reality in this discussion as well, is, is likely to be a very disruptive uh, phenomenon. Now think about, and I get into these conversations all the time, think about what something like that might do to the need to travel. If you could conduct business from your home and, and through these approaches actually feel like you're right there, uh, it it takes a chunk out of uh, out of the airline industry, for example, and, and we'll talk about this through my predictions. But that's the point. In this decade, we're going to see these kinds of things seriously impact existing industry, uh, and and that it's going to have its ramifications, obviously. Thank you very much, Kevin Benedict. Thoughts: Hololens, immerse yourself in five G, three D. What do you think? Well, yeah, especially in the, this era where we're all reading about the epidemic. Um, that's that's out there right now that's uh, impacting everything from supply chain to travel and all that, something like this that would allow you to stay back and do more of your work in a safer environment. Uh, For people like all of us on the phone here today that travel for a living as part of our career, that would be certainly preferable, especially in a climate when either the discomfort or the risk of sickness and conflict and other kinds of things might uh, impact our work, this would certainly be preferable. But I, would, I just recently read an article that was addressing augmented reality, too, which might be the predecessor to this. And it was just saying how what people assumed would happen with augmented reality and everybody would be going there all the time, um, it just is not always what people envisioned. And so mm-hmm. you find more uh, specialized uh, in, uh, applications for it, in the various different industries, this might this is likely to be the same thing. First of all, you see specialized uses of this, where you have large companies that can 
um, invest in, and be early adopters in this kind of technology, um, how it will translate to the individual consumer uh, games, but I, it probably will not look like we uh, might expect in 2020. Thank you. Grace Scott, HoloLens, HoloDeck, 5G, 3D in our homes. What do you, th- <laughs> what say is you? Go ahead. So, uh, actually, it's funny that you bring a subject up because I, I, there's a new book out that I wrote an essay in called Aftershock. It's based off of um, Alvin Toffler's Future Shock book, and it's out now. And the name of my chapter is Technological Hallucinations, and it's all about the future of digital reality and how we will live in a future where our reality is augmented, our perceptions are augmented. And I think whether that's a pair of glasses, maybe Apple comes out with a pair of glasses, augmented reality glasses next year, possibly, or whether it's Google or Amazon or whoever comes out with it, whether it's a pair of glasses or towards the 2030s, a pair of digital contact lenses, when you look out into the world, the world is going to be augmented. And not not the way that we see it now. So the way we see it now are, you know, cat ears and bunny ears and sort of cartoonish um, augmented reality. What I predict in that chapter in, in, in Aftershock is that our reality will be hyper-realistic. In other words, undetectable by the human mind. So the these are highly advanced, super realistic augmentations that, mm-hmm. say, for example, when you walk into your home, you want to see a different wallpaper or you want to see a different fabric on your sofa. Well, you just program that in, or maybe it's a subscription, and what you see is a new version of your living room every time you walk in there based on your parameters and your settings. And it doesn't look cartoonish, and it's not mm-hmm. choppy. It's undetectable unless you take the classes off. That's where we're headed. We're, we're headed to a future where mm. it's almost a digital technological hallucination. Fascinating. And by the way, I found your book, and it's called Aftershock, The World's Foremost Futurists Reflect on 50 Years of Future Shock and Look Ahead to the Next 50, released February 4th, 2020, available in hardcover and Kindle. And it marks, as you said, the 50th anniversary of Alvin Toffler's Future Shock, compendium compendium of essays comprising this landmark volume offers insightful reflections on the classic text and presents compelling and surprising views of the future. And you are in very... Very, very good company here with Ray Kurzweil and Alan Kay and others, Grace. So congratulations on being part of that. Wonderful. Congratulations. Good luck with the book. Thanks, now, Bonnie. Thank you. And now we're going to go around the table, and my guests have done the work in advance to send me their predictions. I'm going to read one from each of you. We're not going to go around the table on it. I want you each to just take two minutes to explain it. We'll see how many we can cover. But thanks for playing along with the other predictions. I thought they were really cool. So, Frank, Diana, I'm looking at yours. I'm looking at number three prediction, and, and this is something on everybody's mind. You say, although there are differences in the job outlook for 2030, no one is denying that jobs will disappear and new jobs will require a massive reskilling of society. Frank, give me a, a two-minute overview of what what kind of jobs are you talking about and what are the opportunities for this reskilling? What demographic cohort will be able to reskill successfully, perhaps? Yeah, this is uh, obviously a very complex topic that two minutes won't do justice to, but it's clearly a polarized topic in that you've got uh, one side of the discussion saying that throughout history we, we've experienced this potential for technological unemployment, though it's never been realized. And you've got another camp that says you know, we've never really been in this place before. Um, but the bottom line is we already are seeing the implications of, of a, a hollowing out of the middle set of skills and the skills or the jobs are on the lower end or the higher end. And so society is faced with the challenge of either reskilling to go up the job ladder or going down the job ladder, which is, in effect, what's happening a lot in society. The wage issues that we see are, are really rooted there. And so there's a friction emerging in terms of jobs, and that friction is either a skill friction, you don't have the skills for the jobs that are emerging, it's a location friction, they just aren't where you are, or there's a very important one that I think is very prominent today, there's an identity friction. The jobs are in places that just don't represent my identity. I was a truck driver, I'm not going into the healthcare space, or or those kinds of things. So what you find 
is a significant piece of the population not working. And those stats don't show up in the unemployment figures, uh, the, the working age population that is just sitting on the sidelines for these reasons. And this problem just gets more acute through this decade. And so the real question, focusing on 2030, is if we don't address these issues, what does that world look like? Thank you very much, Frank. Very interesting. And that is on everybody's minds of of all ages. Thank you. Kevin Benedict, I'm looking at your number three prediction. This fascinates me. You say our vehicles will be connected to real-time weather data, traffic and accident report databases, plus surrounding vehicles to prevent dangers and risks in real time, and to adjust the car's sensors, settings, behaviors, and position to maximum safety. Ooh, is this going to be 2030 or sooner, Kevin Benedict? Talk to me. Well, it can be sooner because, matter of fact, what really brought this to my attention is a project I was working on with a company that's one of, that developed some of the largest safety systems, safety harnesses, braking systems, all this kind of stuff for cars today. But what was interesting, we spent three days together in a workshop, and we were focused on what would a digital twin of the existing physical rubber, metal, carbon, that's there today. What what is a digital? What would a digital twin look like um, for a physical object today? And if you're looking at what's the purpose of a safety system, of course, is to keep the uh, occupants, the humans, safe inside the car as well as to protect against damage. So, what would that take? Well, there's all these databases out there about the intersection that you're approaching. That could, in real time, that could be feedback to your vehicle safety system saying of all the accidents that's ever happened at the intersection you're approaching, mm-hmm. here's where most of the accidents come. They're bike, you know, there are accidents involving car vehicles and bikes. Okay, so if that's the case, the car can be hyper alert for bikes in that intersection. If the weather says when it's this weather condition, the uh, most accidents at the approaching intersection happen because of some other, um, it, it's slippery, cars don't see you, etc. Your systems can be hyper alert for whatever the database says is historically the predominant reason something happens. So then you start looking at it and go, wow, where else can that kind of digital twin, that awareness that's based on sensors and artificial intelligence and big data how can that make our lives better? And that's, you know, I, I, you see that in everything that you can build a digital twin for. Thank you very much. That's optimistically very attractive to most of us. Thank you very much. There are days here. I'm in North Carolina, Kevin, and I I like to drive Zs. I think Gray and Frank know me by now. I'm driving a, a 2015 370Z. It's gorgeous pearl white with a red rag top and red leather seats. And uh, when I came to Durham, I had a, a previous version of that car, which was, I loved it to pieces. But here we do 80 on the highways on just a nice day, not quite so much on a rainy day. Same as when, when Frank in New York, Gray, nobody drives fast in the rain and you're, oh my God, which is a good thing. But we're doing 75 to 80, just tooling down the highway on 45, 40, on 70, wherever you are. And I'm just aware there are some days, Kevin, when people are just shooting, like you know the phrase, a bat out of hell. They're doing 95 to 100, zipping in and out of cars. And I'm thinking, oh my God, where are they going? What are they doing? Are we going to survive them. So it would be nice to know what the risks are in real time. Thank you. Very optimistic, Kevin and Gray Scott. I'm looking at your predictions. They're all terrific, of course, but I like number two. Uh, let's see what Gray says. He says, AI BFF. So that's artificial intelligence, best friends forever. And here's the, the prediction. Artificial intelligent computers will be our new BFF partners and lovers. AI will develop contextual insight and deep emotional understanding. Gray, that's a perennial quest, at least for for women I know, (laughs) looking for a partner who will develop deep emotional understanding. Do we have to wait till 2030 for this? Gray, enlighten me, please. Well, there are several um, artificial intelligence systems and apps now, uh, therapy apps and uh, communication apps. And we've even seen in Japan uh, people, you know, young men marrying their digital girlfriends. I mean, this is not something that's 
brand new, but it is something that's going to become more prevalent as artificial intelligence systems become more contextual and they have more emotional understanding. So imagine in 2030 that you have an AI that you have a deep uh, personal relationship with or even a, a psychological or, a, or emotional or, or you know, romantic relationship with. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this, this AI isn't um, like Siri. This isn't something where you ask a question and it gives you an answer off of Google. This is an AI that, that has contextual memory. It remembers your stories. It's interested in recounting stories that it's been told, which is, a, a you know, in a relationship, that's a huge um, part of a relationship is remembering what the person told you and going back over those experiences. So I've said many times, maybe even on this show, you know, in the future, an AI will say, Bonnie, tell me about that time when you went to the beach when you were 16. I love that story. Or tell me that time when your father took you fishing. Or tell me about your mother making your wedding dress. So it, in the future, we will see a deeper contextual understanding and relationship between our, a, our AI. And, you know, as we've said on the show before, that AI may transfer from place to place and from device to device. So your smart home the AI will live there and listen to you and have, have a conversation with you. And that AI may jump into your smartphone or your digital contact lenses mm-hmm. or your digital glasses, and then it may jump into your smart car, and then it may jump into your office. And so it, it just means that what we're doing today, as I've said before, just there's a, a greater version of that. Uh, it gets smarter. It becomes more emotionally attuned uh, and more contextual. I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. I've been waiting. Okay, never mind. Let's see if we can squeeze in. Since the whole show is predictions, we're not going to do the crystal ball round at the end because the whole show is the crystal ball. So let's see if we can do a quick go round with one more from each of you. I'm looking at the clock. I got six minutes left before we close. So, Frank, Diana, one more from you. By 2030, most of what can be automated will be our homes will become mini manufacturing plants energy production plants with an ability to cater to more of our needs. Frank, 60 seconds. What does this all mean to us? Well, I mean, going back to what I've been saying, yeah. what I've been saying <laughs> in terms of the changes that are likely to happen across industry, these are just examples, right? The 3D printing example disrupts manufacturing and logistics and distribution on a large scale. Uh, you know, as farms go vertical and, and local, so your, your produce will be very, very local. There's no need for transport anymore. Uh, and in and, and the home scenario that you just talked about, 3D printing stuff from our homes or actually creating our own energy, maybe even creating wealth from that energy that we create, uh, all of those things change. And, and one of the, the really critical ones is how we as humans commun- communicate and the changes in this decade from conversational mechanisms to even you know, brain-to-brain oriented communications. Uh, and how about the scenario where we can be in a robot avatar somewhere around the world uh, and actually facilitate dialogue and communicate as if we were right there through a robot. I mean, all these things are coming. And just think about the societal implications of those things. Thank you very much. Good good prediction there. Kevin Benedict, uh, I'm looking at your prediction number four. Let's see if we can do this in 90 seconds. You say disconnecting will increasingly be a sought-after luxury, a spa for the mind, the soul, and the – you see how poetic I get, Kevin? A spa for the mind, the soul, and the senses. Disconnected experiences will be all the rage. And all I can say is, OMG, do we want to disconnect? I don't know. Are we going to – fear of missing out. That's FOMO. So, uh, Kevin, talk to me. 90 seconds. What does this mean? Yeah, I think it's the counterculture. When all the culture accepts the technology, then the counterculture will be those that don't, right? And that always has appeal for a subset. Even if it's only for a limited time, you're going to take a two-hour spa treatment where you're you're going to disconnect from everything, and you're going to fumble your way through the forest without a GPS just so you can bathe in the, you know, the luxury of the trees and the leaves and the plants. I'm, that is the counterculture of the future. Wow, wow, wow. The counterculture of the future. I'm trying to t- tweet this and type it at the same time I'm talking to you. G- great. Do you, do you agree with this? Do you think this is where you would want to be? Just a quick comment from you. You know, it's funny, Bonnie, because that's exactly where my attention is sort of focused right now as a futurist is more towards the sort of permaculture future. 
Um, you know, I've said before that the future, there will be a part of the future that will be wabi-sabi based, meaning um, imperfection is the new value. Human-made is the new value in the future. When everything is automated and a, a toaster costs a dollar, um, mm-hmm. the real value in any object will be, was it made by a human and does it have ah. an art to it, you know? Ah. And so I, I think, I think, um, I think that's right in line with what's, what's happening there. You know, the counterculture right now, and you're starting to see a huge number of young people moving from the city to start farms, whether it's a small one acre farm or whether it's a 40 acre farm, you're starting to see younger people take, um, take the system of growing food uh, very seriously. And, you know, I don't know if you, if your listeners know about this, but um, you know, we've talked, about vertical farming, we've talked about underground farms, we've mm-hmm. talked about um, using vermiculture where you use worms and mm-hmm. using the worm tea to grow food because it has nutrients. But there's a, a huge movement in the permaculture field right now. Uh, one of those is regreening deserts and turning arid land back into forests. And this is something that we can do to reverse uh, climate change. So there's, there's a huge movement of people who are using technology to educate themselves and make the planet better, you know, change um, the way we live and the way we eat in the future. So I think that tracks. Thank you. And that was your prediction number four. I just added permaculture, regreening deserts, underground farms will dominate. You mentioned using LED pink lights, vermaponics, vertical farming. We will be forced to farm underground for reliable supplies of fresh food. Thank you, Gray. You did my did my job for me here. I appreciate that. You also talk about digital nomads will dominate the workforce. Global satellite Wi-Fi will let people roam free in the remote parts, most remote parts of the planet and still be productive. I'm all for that, although I like my home office here very much. I can't thank the three of you enough. This was has just been uh, Gray and, and Frank have been on many times. This is so lively and fast, and I really appreciate the flexibility and fluidity, if I will, and how wonderful the three of you were. So I'm going to say thank you, Frank, Diana. We always appreciate and are honored when you join me here on Technology Revolution, the future of now. Kevin Benedict, come back anytime you fit right in. I'll just say it. We love you. <laughs> This was great. You jumped in. You didn't know the format. You didn't know me. And here you are. And Gray Scott, futuristic now. Just keep it coming, Gray. Always appreciate your way of looking at that future. So different from so many people we know. Three futurists. I'm so honored to have the three of you. Again, thank you to Ryan Treasure, my co-producer, who does that wonderful opening for the show. Now, now, now. And Aaron Keller, my engineer, who has nerves of steel because he never knows what the show is going to be. So thanks to our listeners around the world for tuning in to Technology revolution the future of now remember the future of now did not happen yet you are going to be part of making it happen make it great bonnie d graham aka radio red signing off bye bye thank you for joining us for technology revolution the future of now mark your calendar to join host bonnie d graham every wednesday at 8 a.m pacific time 11 a.m eastern on the voice america business channel to hear how technology is impacting your future now